Welcome to the JLL Clustering Insights podcast. I'm your host, Chris Walters, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Greg Clark. Greg has a number of different roles, which we've just been talking about before we, we started recording. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself, Greg, if that's okay, because I know it's, it's varied, but really, really interesting. Firstly, thanks very much for joining. Chris, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And if I was to introduce myself very quickly, I'd say I'm an urbanist. I'm kind of fascinated by cities. I'm really interested in innovation, particularly how the economy changes as technology evolves. And I'm a writer and I I like to try and put ideas out there and get responses to them. I'm also lucky enough to have a lot of non-executive roles in the UK and advisory roles abroad. So I try to keep busy. Well, it's great to have you. And for those that are tuning in and have listened to our podcast series before, or ones which are tuning in for the first time, um, you'll pick up that a lot of the focus to date has been around life sciences as, as a sector and an industry. We're going to zoom out a little bit for the purpose of today's podcast. Greg has some excellent insight, which we're about to delve into, particularly around innovation districts and also the urban environment. So we're going to Look at the life sciences sector in that context. And I think, Greg, to to kick us off with, as any good host should be doing, I've been delving into your thought leadership and, and work in this space. And one of the first things that came out was the phrase that our future is urban. And I wanted to start off by by talking a bit about that and what role you see innovation, education, technology playing in, in driving our cities. What are you seeing at the coalface at the moment in terms of those trends affecting our our urban environment. Thanks, Chris. Well, let's set a framework here for the discussion then. I think by 2100, we'll have 10 billion people living in 10,000 cities or more, but at least 10,000 cities. And therefore, we can think of the time that we're in, the century we're living in now, as a great anthropological human trek towards the city. And there's no evidence, by the way, that the COVID-19 pandemic and the acceleration of digital technologies has changed that overall trend, although we might talk about some of the specifics a little bit later on. And I locate this really as being an interesting 100 years that sort of begins in 1980, when 40% of the world's population lived in cities. And by 2080, 100 years later, it'll be 80%, so a doubling of the percentage. We're moving from 2.3 billion people living in cities in 1980 to 9.3 billion people living in cities by 2080, a quadrupling of the number of people who live in cities. We're moving from 275 cities of 1 million people in 1980 to 1,600 in 2080, a multiplication by six of the number of cities over 1 million. So I think we have to accept that this pro-urbanization model that the world is in, fueled by massive population growth, by technology change and by various kinds of industrialization is the context in which we're having almost every other conversation, whether that conversation is about climate change, whether it's about innovation economy, whether it's about good governance and, and ESG more broadly, or whether it's a conversation about you know global disparities, uh, equality, incomes and everything else. And I suppose now to answer your question more directly, what I would say is that 1980 is the key date to begin with, because just in that year, I would suggest that two trends simultaneously combined to create a cycle. Trend number one 
re-urbanization in the industrialized world. So that de-industrialization process that happened in the OECD countries after the Second World War through to the 70s and the 80s. This began to reverse in 1980 as the shift towards globally traded information, services, media, and technology began the process of re-urbanization that in the West we've called urban regeneration. But in fact, it's a re-urbanization process. And at about the same time, in what we might call the developing world, we saw that the experience of the Asian tiger economies, what had happened in Taiwan and in South Korea, in Singapore and in Hong Kong, became recognized by the rest of the global South as being a model of combining industrialization with urbanization. And therefore, you had this pro-urbanization trend there as well. So all of a sudden, in 1980, a pro-urbanization trend begins in both parts of the world. And that's what's accelerated this growth of urban populations, but also this growth of urban economies. Now, in the developed parts of the world, in the rich part of the world, if you want to put it that way, because services, globalization, and technology have been at the heart of that growth, this is what has given rise to these four big new urban economies that we talk about. Firstly, the innovation economy, which is going to be the subject of most, most of our discussion today. The ability to commercialize through business models, discovery, science, technology, and other things into new products, services, and processes. But that sits alongside three other new kinds of economies. The experience economy that is very much about how we interact with each other, our experience of place in particular. The sharing economy, which is about creating all sorts of new kinds of business models, which really relates importantly to real estate, as you will know. And of course, the circular economy, the drive towards having an economy which meets our future requirements in terms of the sustainability of the planet. So right at the heart of this urbanization process that I've described, the thing that takes us to 10 billion people living in 10,000 cities by 2100 is the idea that technology education, knowledge, and innovation are driving the way we create value within our cities, in particular in the global north, but increasingly in the global south as well. Incredible statistics, particularly across the different metrics that you described. I mean, just picking up on the innovation economy piece you know, we were talking just before we joined around them being such an integral part of the future growth of cities. And as you said, that's one of a number of four that are going to define the future growth. A term that's commonly talked about in, the, in that context is around innovation districts. So I mean, I'm intrigued based on your learnings, how you're speaking with clients, et cetera, and, and sharing that knowledge. How would you define what an innovation district is? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Chris. And, and uh, I'm, a, I'm somebody who likes to have a very kind of broad view of these things. So I, I don't seek to define innovation districts. But let's go right back to Michael Porter and the observation that in knowledge-intensive industries, spatial clustering is a feature of how they grow. In other words, once you're doing things that are about the sharing of knowledge, insights, ideas, new technology applications, new understanding of science discovery, 
there's a benefit to collaboration both within firms and between firms and between firms and research intensive institutions and others that leads to physical clustering being an advantageous way to organize that economy. And because physical clustering has all the benefits of sharing interaction, both the formal processes of collaboration and all of the informal processes of, of interaction that happens between workers, between innovators, between investors and others, then what you get, of course, is what we've come to call the agglomeration benefits of that clustering, which, uh, which is about accelerating the innovation itself, but also accelerating the the process of people acquiring skills and knowledge, our understanding of enterprise models, the ability of employers and investors and others to have richer sets of choices because of the clustering of firms and people and everything else. So the phenomena is clustering. And then the physical form that this takes in many cities is what's come to be called an innovation district or, or innovation districts or innovation places. And I, I think the important observation to make is that because in many cities, the process of shifting from what we might call the service economy to the innovation economy is a process that is optimized through deliberate planning, strategy making, perhaps policy making, but certainly the deliberate activities of real estate investors and asset managers and others. Because that's a deliberate path, it often makes sense for a city to define a location in which they think that will happen. Now, two things to say about that. The economy has a habit of ignoring policy. So it's very important, of course, not to say that we're picking the location where the innovation's going to occur. In most cases, a city government or a regional authority or even a national government is trying to follow what they see to be market trends that are nascent and are embryonic and they want to encourage. So it's not about picking locations, it's about following the market and creating, enabling policies around them. And secondly, of course, it's not necessarily the case that these things always cluster in an individual location. And we know from all of the experience of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s with the technology parks, the science parks, the innovation hubs and everything else, that the market has a habit of saying, actually, for certain kinds of sectors, this clustering can be more distributed than in other kinds of sectors. But where we are today is that many, many cities are pursuing the idea that they want to have an innovation district as a way of beginning the process of demonstrating that shift towards the innovation economy. I want to say two more things about this, Chris. So I think that the purpose of innovation districts is not just, as it were, to enable the physical clustering together of the entrepreneurs, the research intensive institutions and everything else. It's also to create a kind of visibility around this transition so that mobile workers, footloose entrepreneurs, uh, investors and others can observe the process, generate some confidence about it. And this helps with the risk and return profile of participating in an innovation economy where the business models are less predictable than they are in other kinds of economies. So the innovation district serves the purpose of not just facilitating the clustering, but also of creating the visibility, the branding, the identity and the sense of purpose into the future. It's a really interesting point that you're saying around, you know, you can't force this upon the market, essentially. And I think we're seeing the same thing. You know, we are watching our clients, particularly on the developer investor side, when they're looking to bring forward space to cater for the knowledge economy or innovation economy, they are following where the activity is already taking place today. They're looking at what the anchors might be and how can they 
really get under the skin of what's driving company creation, what's driving company growth, because inevitably that is what will drive value back into that real estate investment. But equally, I think we are seeing, as you'd expect, to trying to diversify this creation of value, whether it's economic or social value across different parts of, of the UK to try and make sure that we're optimizing the potential of, of different markets. So we'll come back to the UK piece in, in a moment, but to, to stick with the theme of, of clusters and, and what you were talking about there around, around innovation economies, there's a point around defining it, which we've just touched on. But the other point is how do you actually measure success in a cluster? And I think a lot of the conversations that we may be having with clients, particularly those from a perhaps a more public sector perspective, they're looking at economic impact. They're looking at the creation of jobs as the primary indicator of success. But I think there's also a growing measurement that needs to be understood and, and challenged around what is the social impact of new build space that's coming forward, particularly around this innovation economy theme. So I was interested to get your take on what are those metrics of success or actually do they need to be a bit flexible depending on the type of, of clustering that's taking place? It's a great question, Chris. And to answer it, I think I need to start by saying, I think that there is a little bit of confusion around about the relationship between cities and innovation. And I think one very simple way to think about it is that cities embrace innovation in three slightly different ways. So on the one hand, many cities want to host the innovation economy. They want to be a place where there is that clustering of the technology-rich, science-rich, discovery-rich firms that cluster together, that produce high-value jobs, taxes. They're, they're in a growth market. They're able to sustain a high level of employment. And they're are able to uh, renovate, uh, retrofit and renew districts in the city, especially old industrial districts and others. So that's one bit, hosting the innovation economy. But there's another way in which cities embrace innovation, which is what we might call urban innovation, which is how they use similar technologies. And the, these might be digital technologies, they might be facial recognition, they might be camera technologies, they might be drone technologies to improve the efficiency of the city itself. So we see this in the way, for example, that transport systems work. We talk about multimodal integrated intelligent transport systems, or we talk about intelligent buildings, intelligent districts. We talk about how they work to, to recognize people who are there, how they optimize urban assets. And we talk, of course, about e-government or e-services or digital governance. So there's a way in which we need to think about urban innovation. And then, of course, thirdly, there's another part of this, which we might call social innovation, which is about how we get people and communities much more involved in creatively curating and co-creating solutions to local neighborhood challenges, including what we call tactical urbanism and the reclaiming of disused space by communities. And I think that for many cities, they want all of this. And there's a tendency to think that the innovation economy should also be delivering the urban innovation and the social innovation, whereas actually all three of these things require slightly different but complementary strategies. So that's the first thing I think I would say about this. Then I think what you can do is begin to define measures for each of those things. And of course, also one of the things you're looking to measure is unintended consequences. So within the innovation economy, you're of course looking to measure things like the number of unique firms that are emerging, the jobs they're creating, their ability to use space, the effect that that's having on the labor market, how it enables you to attract and retain population, how it enables you to optimize 
optimize the research and technology capabilities of your universities, your other learned institutions, your hospitals and others? And eventually, what part of your whole urban economy do the innovation sectors begin to occupy? And how does that give you a longer term advantageous position in global value chains? How does it give you longer term diversification of your economy? In the end, you're talking about economic resilience, I think there and measures of that mm. in urban innovation you're talking much more about the efficiency of urban systems and services and platforms of course your transport systems your built environment your placemaking and everything else and in social innovation you're talking much more about social capital community participation you're talking about the engagement of citizens in everything from citizen budgeting to tactical urbanism to new kinds of engagement experiments and different measures for different aspects of this the big thing that, of course, many cities are concerned about is the unintended consequences that occur when you grow your innovation economy with its high-value jobs, its high-paying wages, and the effect that that can have on the rest of your urban economy, particularly whether it accidentally creates a kind of gentrification effect which may have the effect of crowding out people in the city who are on lower incomes, who can't afford perhaps either the same services or the same homes and others. And therefore, it's very important to deploy the urban innovation and the social innovation at the same time as you try to host the innovation economy, because that's one of the ways that you can tackle these unintended consequences. Let me say lastly that, of course, the key point here is that if you're going to pursue the innovation economy as a city, you have to plan for growth. And that means you have to be able to plan for high capacity transport systems that will move people around easily. You have to plan for digital infrastructure that's going to enable the economy to work. You have to plan for the growth of the space it's going to require. And more important than anything, you have to plan for the housing needs you'll have as the innovation economy grows. If you fail to plan for those things, you will end up with that accidental gentrification that causes all of those policy dilemmas for city leaders. I mean, the, the point that you mentioned, Greg, around planning for the future, you know, mapping out what those future infrastructure requirements will be, as I'm sure you're aware, it's a hot topic in some of the core clusters that we're seeing from a life sciences perspective. There's clearly a role, as you said, for local and central government, the custodians who are managing that planning to really think through how are you going to cater for this uptick in new residents or an increase in employment that's going to happen? Because we can't afford to be in a situation where we're able to bring forward new space to cater for that growth, but there isn't the underlying infrastructure to make it work. And so we've talked a bit about the, the requirement for planning and there's perhaps more on the, on the public sector side. But when you think about the private real estate sector, what role do you think they have to play in terms of making sure that you can deliver that successful cluster, particularly around the innovation economy? And I think I'm sure you'll touch on by extension how they can contribute to the urban innovation and the social innovation that you just talked about as well. So it's a very big question, Chris. We better just say straight away that I think that the UK has been behind its own curve on planning for its own growth, both in terms of population growth, economic growth and change, the emergence of this innovation economy. But one of the reasons that we have the sorts of challenges that we have with over-concentration of these activities in some parts of the country and not in others is because we haven't really planned intelligently to enable growth to occur in multiple locations with all of the underpinning infrastructures that are, are needed to do that. 
But let's answer the real estate question more directly, because I think this is one of the most exciting sort of areas in our economy now. And I'm one of those people who believes that real estate is also in an amazing transition from being, let's say, 20, 30 years ago, perceived to be a sort of asset management industry where these were relatively passive assets that we had to manage correctly in order to retain their value to real estate becoming a really dynamic fabric within an agile and changing economy and real estate being actually a competitive ingredient in how our economies emerge and perform. So, so let's make some obvious points when we think about real estate and the innovation economy. The first one, I think, is to recognize that the business dynamics in the innovation economy are both very diverse. You know, there's a big difference between life sciences, let's say, and digital technologies or between sustainable energy and, and between, you know, circular economy. These are all different kinds of sectors, if you like. And within life sciences, of course, you've got everything from pharma to med tech to medical discovery to stem cell therapy and much more. So you've got very different requirements of different subsectors, and you've got extremely dynamic businesses that are going to grow fast, they're going to consolidate, there'll be high levels of mergers and acquisitions, they're going to change their shape and form, they're going to diversify their position within value chains, some firms are going to begin as pure R&D, and they're going to become production capabilities, others are going to stay with pure R&D, but they're going to become leaders of other clusters. So you're looking at a cycle of change and business development that's much faster than we're used to in the service economy, in the industrial economy, or in the commodities economy. So we need to remember that. What we call, you know, the, the, the quaternary economy or the innovation economy, the process of change is much quicker. And therefore, real estate has to be much more responsive. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that because these companies are going to grow quickly and morph and change quickly, real estate investors and asset managers and owners need to anticipate those changes and they need to be ready to produce the follow-on space, the additional space, the specific requirements. And to remember, it's not just all about labs. There's also production capability. There's IP protection. There's all of the services side of the life sciences economy. That's very important. They need to think about the quality of place that is appropriate to workers, leaders and innovators within these sectors and what kind of quality of place will both facilitate the clustering that is required, but will also protect the IP that needs to be protected as well. So you've got these competing forces between collaboration versus protection and how can you create places that are able to do both of those. And then, of course, you have to think about how intelligent the buildings will be because the life Sciences cluster, as well as the other innovation clusters, also have responsibilities in the ESG arena. They have to be buildings that are going to be net zero, be efficient, provide an amazing experience, be appropriate to a diverse workforce that will have different requirements in terms of privacy protection and other things. So real estate ends up being not a passive asset or a platform. It ends up being a very vital active fabric in whether or not a life sciences cluster or any other innovation cluster is able not just to emerge, but to grow and to mature in a specific location or set of locations. And you also have what I would call the, the adjacency challenge, the good neighbor policies, 
How do you make sure that if you're a real estate cluster focusing on life sciences, you're also behaving well towards the other activities that are happening in the area around you and you're creating a place that works overall well? And these are no small challenges, Chris. <laughs> It's great to get your take on it. And it echoes a lot of the things that we are seeing and hearing when we're speaking to our clients. I think the main principle for us, as you touched on, is that real estate is very much an enabler. And, you know, you talked about making sure you understand the market, diversity of the sector, delivering flexible products, quality of place technology. As you said, it's not a not necessarily an easy thing to do. And quite a lot of those things will overlap and you really need to make sure that you are delivering the best in class product to make sure that it's attractive to the end user. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Chris. And what really fascinates me is that increasingly you see firms emerging that are both real estate firms and they're also life sciences investors, they're incubators, they're others. If you like, you've got the integration of the real estate, the incubation, the entrepreneurship and the investment activity within a single balance sheet. And I think that's a very interesting phenomena for the future as investors realize that they not only need to invest in the firms, but they need to invest in the agile physical fabric in which they're going to work. And those who are real estate investors realize they need to invest in the next generation of tenants and therefore they need to be very active in that space. So I think increasingly we're going to see these hybrid companies emerging that are both life sciences or other innovation uh, economy investors and are also real estate investors and asset managers and everything else. And that's fascinating. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think probably have a handful of those that I'm certainly aware of on the global stage. But I think well, the other thing that I have noted with interest is that some of the real estate investors will also have exposure to this market because they have completely different arms of their business, completely unrelated to real estate, directly investing into the company. So how can they use that shared knowledge, which you know, requires some joining of the dots and some big organizations to really make sure they understand that product? Because as you rightly touched on, it's, it's moving at pace. There are new technologies coming out in this field all of the time. And that is a, a very common question that I think we get asked by, by developers of space. Just wrapping all of those things up, and I appreciate this is perhaps a difficult question to answer in the round because it is multifaceted in its very nature. But when you think about global exemplars in, in this space, particularly around innovation economies, districts, cities, etc., which ones stand out for you on the global stage and, and why? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And of course, there is a kind of a well-known list of superstar cities that are perceived to be the leaders in the innovation economy from Boston to San Francisco and, 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 and Berlin. And, and of course, London and New York are increasingly in that space. I think there's a very interesting trend here, Chris, that what we might think of as in the past, it's been cities that are quite dominated by their universities or their medical capability that have become the leaders. Boston is the kind of the quintessential example of that. But increasingly, there's a an urbanization of the innovation economy that's bringing innovation much more into the big, well-established cities, which is why you see Paris, London, New York, Tokyo in particular becoming a much bigger presence in this space. 
But I also like to think about cities that we might think of as second tier cities, but all round cities that I think are doing some very interesting things in this space. So Toronto and Philadelphia in North America occur to me as being fascinating places. I've done quite a lot of work in both cities. And Toronto, of course, has built Mars, the Discovery District, which I think is one of North America's most dynamic clusters. And it continues to evolve and emerge. And, and Philadelphia, of course, is, is the city that I believe produces 25% of all the qualified doctors in the United States every year and is therefore now specializing in, in how it does all of that and how it creates stem and gene cell therapy clusters there. In Europe, I think it's very important not to ignore cities like Utrecht, which of course is part of that Randstad grouping or that Holland Metropole grouping and therefore is providing the life sciences cluster for Amsterdam, Rotterdam and The Hague. And of course, the Nordic cities are very active in all of this as well. And in Asia, as well as Tokyo, where we're seeing a, a massive growth, uh, Singapore is obviously a leader, particularly with the Jurong district with One North and everything else that's happening there. But then you also have to think about cities like Suzhou and Shenzhen in China, where there's been a massive acceleration of innovation activity, not the same kind of ecosystem that we're used to seeing in the West, but where if you like, you've got a state-sponsored or state-owned enterprise-sponsored kind of innovation process happening, which is different in the way that intellectual property is created. It's different in the way that enterprise investment occurs, but nonetheless is producing some stunning results. So I think there are lots of places around the world we should be interested in. That's great. A couple of points listening to you give your view on what those global exemplars are. I think you know we've looked at Utrecht, for example, as part of a European-wide cluster report that we've done on the life sciences sector, performs very well, arguably could sit in the, how we defined it as advanced clusters in the same bucket as, as Cambridge, Oxford and London as the Golden Triangle. Some really interesting stuff happening there. And you mentioned also what you're seeing in Asia. I think we are watching with interest about the the actual volume of company creation and growth and how some of those companies are looking to come into the, to the UK market as well. So certainly things to watch there. Going from the macro down to the UK, how do you feel the UK sits in the context of that global stage? You know, we have some great underlying credentials that we've already touched on as part of the podcast, which, you know, around academic strength, research power, the ability for us to attract highly skilled talent, but it also feels like we've got some challenges that we need to overcome to make sure that we optimize that growth moving forward. How do you feel we sit today and what do we need to do more of to make sure that we stay ahead of the pack as such? Well, I think I need to start by just agreeing with you first and to say that I think the innovation economy and all of its diverse sectors is absolutely critical to the UK's future. It is our destiny to deploy our brilliance in science, discovery, technology and medicine to create a productive economy for the future. And if we fail to do so, we'll have missed our destiny. It's, it's very clear. And secondly, because the UK also has prowess in finance, in design, in, in, in digital industries in particular, we need to find ways to bring those together with the innovation sectors in order to really maximise our advantages. How are we doing so far? I think we're doing well in parts. And obviously, we talk a lot about the, the London, Oxford, Cambridge Triangle and how well they're doing. That's very clear that that is doing well. That needs to be enabled, facilitated and encouraged. But if you compare 
compare the UK, let's say, to the Northeast Corridor of North America, the Boston to Washington area, roughly the same size population, 60, 70 million, roughly the same number of hospitals and universities. But in that area of the USA, there are at least twice as many established innovation clusters. There's much more innovation economy, real estate. They've done something that we haven't done. They've learned how to optimize that. And I think that shows us that a more distributed model where other parts of the UK are able to grow and develop their clusters is going to be very important. We shouldn't be thinking of this as London and Oxford and Cambridge against the rest. We should be thinking about expanding the connections between these different concentrations so that there's a, a clustering of the clusters across the UK. And we should be obviously trying to integrate Glasgow and Dundee and Edinburgh and Manchester and Liverpool and Birmingham and Leeds and Sheffield and Cardiff and Bristol and all of the other places that I haven't mentioned into that because the strength of our offer is in the combination of these places. It's not in the competition between them. Couldn't agree more. And I love the idea of us embracing and hitting our destiny and making sure that we make the most of the opportunity. Greg, thank you so much for your time. Really insightful comments and really enjoyed the discussion. Me too. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more on the life science innovation sector, search JLL Clustering Insights Podcast online or subscribe via Spotify or Apple Podcasts.